You know, Jesus had a way of ruining people's day. The most famous example of that in the Gospels is the story of when Jesus, the Son of God, went into the temple, the house of God. And he goes to visit for a worship service and, well, things get out of hand pretty quickly. And you may know the story, but the temple of God in Jerusalem is actually in the New Testament is one of the main characters in all of the New Testament. This massive structure that was dedicated to the worship of the one true God of Israel. In fact, this massive complex in the middle of Jerusalem really was the Israel's people attempt to embody the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And by the time of Jesus, the people of Israel took that very seriously. And they wanted to have a monolithic structure to embody their monotheistic system of worship. There's only one God, and so you can funnel all of your energy, all your effort into building this incredible structure. And the ancient temple in Jesus' day really was a wonder of the world. It had been kind of refurbished and refashioned about 40 years before Jesus was born by Herod the Great. And they literally leveled mountains in Jerusalem to build this structure, worked around the clock, and built such an incredible building made of this white limestone that when the sun would shine on it, that they could not look at it. It was just blinding in its brilliance. And they believed that the temple was God's footstool on earth. This was where God's throne sat, where heaven touched earth, where eternity interacted with humanity. It was an important place at the center of all Jewish life. It was staffed by hundreds of priests who worked around the clock making sacrifice after sacrifice, spilling gallons of blood to atone for the people's sins. It was the center of Jewish identity, the center of Jewish life, the way they believed it was the center of the world. It was where God would work on their behalf. But by the time of Jesus, the temple had become big business. See, people coming to worship in the temple would have to bring sacrifices with them. They would have to bring things like sheep, goats, bulls. But many of those people did not live in Jerusalem. Many of them did not even live inside of the borders of Israel. And so some of them would be traveling hundreds of miles across the Roman Empire to bring their sacrifices to worship. Now, I go crazy driving my kids 10 minutes to Walmart. Can you imagine walking hundreds of miles with your family and with all of this livestock to make your sacrifices to God. So what the people at the temple did, they said, we'll just make this convenient for you. You can just buy the sacrifices when you get here for a small fee. You got to pay for convenience, right? Just drive through livestock auction. That's a good idea. The challenge was that most of the people coming to the temple to worship did not have the official temple currency. And so the people at the top, well, they had thought of everything. They said, that's no problem. You can't use your money to buy the sacrifices we'll sell you, but you can give us your money, and we'll give you the right money for a small fee, for the convenience, and then you can use our money to buy our sacrifices, and they've charged you twice. They're double-dipping. And Jesus comes into the temple one day, and he sees all of this hustle and bustle. And he sees the livestock pens. And the thing about animals is animals are noisy, and animals are messy, and animals are smelly. People are trading money, and frustrated travelers are aggravated, and they're losing patience. And on top of all of this chaos in the temple, since the temple was such a big structure right in the middle of Jerusalem, 
it became a shortcut through town. So somebody buying cloth on one side of Jerusalem, going to the other side of Jerusalem, back to their home, instead of going around the holy place, they would just walk through it. It was easier. It was all about convenience. And Jesus sees all of these people. He hears all of this noise. He smells all the animal stuff. And he realizes that if somebody really did come in there with a sincere heart to pray, they couldn't focus their thoughts toward God. They couldn't have a moment of quiet and silence where they could hear the voice of God speaking. The worship of God had been twisted and had been corrupted. Jesus said, you've made it into a den of thieves where you've just got your hand in the back pockets of people who come to worship. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus forms a whip. That's a skill that you may not have known Jesus had. You've got to make whips. And he overthrows the tables. He runs the livestock out of the temple. And Jesus just ruins everybody's day as he runs the money changers out of the temple. When that happens, John chapter number 2, verse number 17, Jesus' disciples see all of this chaos. They see sheep running everywhere and Jesus running people off. And they hear all this. And their minds go back to an Old Testament verse. Their minds are triggered to think of Psalm chapter 69 and verse number 19. That says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. They recognize in that moment, Jesus' passion for the glory of God. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And that word zeal is going to appear in our text today, in Exodus chapter number 20. It's going to appear as the word jealousy. But it's the same idea that God is passionate for His glory as God. That God is zealous for His glory and God is jealous over His people. Let's read from Exodus chapter 20 as we continue studying the Ten Commandments this morning. Exodus chapter number 20. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 1, we found out last Sunday morning that we have some work to do in memorizing the Ten Commandments, so maybe you've got a few more this week. So we'll read them all again together today. And God spake all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. That is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of your fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, 
or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is given to the people of Israel so that they will be absolutely clear on who they worship. The Lord Jehovah says to his people, I have rescued you, I have delivered you, and on top of that, I made you and everything else. I have no equal and I have no rival. There is no God like me, and so you are not allowed to have any God but me. That commandment is about who the people worship. The second commandment is about how the people worship. You cannot make any, what the King James calls, any graven image. You cannot make any graven image. How is God to be worshipped? Does it surprise you to think today that God cares how he is worshipped? I mean, surely, all God really expects is for us to come to church, and if we come to church, and if we mean it, and if we feel it, and if we're sincere, then God must just be so tickled with all of us, right? That's all that matters. I would tell you today that the second commandment that forbids the making of any image of God actually reminds us that our God is as passionate for His glory today as He was when He gave the Ten Commandments. Our God is as passionate for His own glory in being God today as He was when Jesus cleared the temple so many years ago. God is passionate about being God. And as such, God cares about how we conceive of Him, how we represent Him, how we misrepresent Him how we interact with Him, how we think about Him, and how we worship Him. And that actually has been running as a theme all throughout the book of Exodus up to this point already. If you know the story of the Exodus, you know that when Moses comes to confront Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refuses to listen to the Word of God given to Moses, that God begins to send plagues to the people of Egypt. But you may not remember that after a while, all of Pharaoh's henchmen get really tired of this. You would get tired of having frogs in your bed when you woke up in the morning too. You would get tired of having fleas and lice and all this stuff. And so they, they tell Pharaoh in Exodus chapter number 10, they say, listen, it's time to make a deal with Moses. They say this, Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Your Highness, are you paying attention? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Pharaoh says, go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. Young and old, sons and daughters, that pretty much covers it. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If I ever let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord. For that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh tries to negotiate with Moses. He says, here's what we'll do. I'll let you go worship the Lord. I don't care. I don't even believe your God exists. Go worship him. But only the men can go. Let me determine how your God is going to be worshipped. God does not take that deal. But rather, God comes in judgment on the people of Egypt, in judgment on Pharaoh. He delivers the Israelites out of the bondage of Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea, provides for them in the wilderness, now comes to Mount Sinai where he gives them his law, saying, you cannot represent me by any other image. And then even after the Ten Commandments, God 
gives precise instructions about the tabernacle, where the people worship God. God gives specific details about the kind of furniture. God really cares about how the tables look, the precise measurements, about who is able to read, uh, lead in the liturgy of Israelite worship. God is concerned about how He is worshipped. God is concerned about how you worship Him. God is concerned about how you perceive of Him. God is concerned of how you devote yourself to Him. And so this text begins today with a warning against man's creativity. This is a warning against man's creativity. You cannot make yourself a carved or graven image. Now some have taken this based upon what's said next that we're not allowed to make any kind of picture. This is why the Amish kids hide from you when you go to buy your sourdough bread and you pull out your phone because they think if you're taking a picture, you're making a graven image. That's why they give their little girls those creepy baby dolls with no faces on, right? Because they think that's making a graven image. But if you look at verse 5, what God is clearly talking about in this text is worship. You see verse number 5, You shall not bow down to them and serve them, for I the Lord, I Jehovah, I Yahweh, your God, I am a jealous God. What God is forbidding in the second commandment is the people of Israel ever making an image out of Him, out of the things Brother John read about, stones, rocks, we would say memes, or any other medium. God says, you cannot represent me visually. And God says, the reason you cannot represent me visually is because as soon as you try to represent me, you've misrepresented me. Because there's no way that your mind could conceive or your hands could confession of any image that is as glorious as I really am. Because whatever you do, you're going to mess it up. God says, I'm not made out of Play-Doh. And you cannot just form me and fashion me into whatever you would like for me to be. God says, I am who I am. I am your God. I am full of glory. I'm passionate for my glory. And for you to try and imagine that or represent that, you're going to mess it up. So don't even do it. That's what God's saying in this commandment. Because think about what would happen. A sculptor says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to carve out of this hunk of granite an image of God that we can worship. And he may be brilliant. He may be a capable sculptor. But somewhere inside of him, something's going to happen where he has to decide, what do I think God looks like? Who do I want God to be? What do I need to include? And what do I need to leave out? And as he makes those decisions, whatever the sculpture he ends up with is, the one thing it's not is a representation of God. Because as soon as we try and represent him, we inevitably misrepresent him. Friends, I would tell you today that this prohibition is a warning against that inborn tendency all of us have to exchange the truth about the one true glorious God for something less. The Bible says this to us in Romans chapter number 1. It says that although humans, they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. If that's not the best one sentence summary of humanity. I don't know what is. But here's what they did. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We have a tendency to exchange the glorious God who is beyond, beyond our comprehension, who is beyond our greatest conceptions of Him and make Him into something that we can understand. Make Him into someone we can manage. 
make him into something that, like an idol, we can move around. And that tendency to create a false god, a false image of God, y'all, that's inside of every one of us. It was inside the people of Israel. And I know it was inside the people of Israel because while Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, receiving the very Ten Commandments, do you know what the people of Israel started doing? Well, they got bored. Dangerous things happen when we get bored. And the Bible records for us in Exodus chapter number 32 that they come to Moses' brother Aaron and they say, all right, man, here's what we need you to do. We need you to make us a God. And what we're going to do is we're going to give you all of our earrings and all of our nose rings and we're going to give you all of our jewelry. And what we're going to do is we're going to have you make us an image of the God who brought us out of Egypt. And that's what Aaron says when he makes the golden calf. He says to the people, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. So there's this corrupted worship where they say, yeah, this is God. But look at him. He looks like a big giant calf. Now, I like veal parmesan as much as anybody else. But why in the world would you worship a baby cow? Because ultimately, folks, any time that we try to misrepresent and represent God, what are we doing? We're exchanging the glorious God for something like a baby cow. And we should see in that how we are always downgrading to a knockoff if we worship a false God. Any of y'all grow up poor like I did? I, growing up, my parents didn't have a lot, and so we didn't have cool shoes. Our shoes came from Walmart. And so when I was a kid, the big shoes everybody wanted were Reebok pumps. Remember those? You can still buy them, you know, and you go, and then you'd be ready to go hooping, right? I didn't have Reebok pumps. I had Reebok dumps from Walmart. That's what I had. <laughs> Some of you ladies came into church today carrying your Michelle Coors pocketbook. A lot of us have owned a pair of Raydan sunglasses. What God is saying is that as soon as you try to represent me, man, you've got to knock off God. And a knockoff God can't hear you. A knockoff God can't help you. A knockoff God certainly cannot save you. And a knockoff God is not worthy of worship. Of course, we look around today and say, all right, well, Brother Jesse, fair enough, but there are no idols in here. Yeah, we have a cross, but it's not even a crucifix. There's no Jesus on there. We're doing okay. We don't have any false gods. And we don't, we don't worship God falsely. But I think this tendency is more prevalent than we realize. When we look at the Word of God, and we find things that make us uncomfortable, or things that are hard to understand, and we reject them outright because we don't want them to be true, then we are remaking God in our image. When churches perhaps ignore hard passages of Scripture about judgment, and about God's righteousness, and holiness, and only preach messages of love and forgiveness. They are misrepresenting God. And, and contrary-wise, when churches just love to beat people to death with legalistic sermons that make people feel miserable and give nothing but rules and commands and just emphasize the holiness of God and never mention God's grace in Christ, that's misrepresenting God. When we only focus on perhaps God's calls to social justice, and social causes, and we ignore God's commands for personal holiness, that is misrepresenting God. We are more guilty of this than we realize. I'll give you an example. Uh, a few months ago, when the latest conflict between Israel and Palestine started to flare back up, I saw some well-meaning Christians on Facebook sharing a meme. And I thought about showing it to you today, but I think it's blasphemous, so I'm not going to do it. But there's a picture of the globe, there's a painting of the globe, and then there are all these white-robed saints kind of hovering in outer space looking down on the globe. 
And then I think on the left hand you have Jesus, or the, you know, the way we think Jesus would have looked, just a white guy with long hair and a beard. And Then on the right hand, I could not believe this, I was outraged when I saw this. On the right was a picture of God. He looked like old Jesus, right? He looked like the guy from the Oak Ridge Boys, white hair, white beard. That's what God looks like. But I saw sincere, well-meaning Christians sharing that because the caption said, Son, go get your children. And I saw that picture and I thought, that is a blasphemous violation of the second commandment. Because that is an image in an artist's mind that said, this is what God is like. But the true God of heaven is greater than our conceptions of Him. The true God of heaven is greater than our understanding of Him. The true God of heaven is bigger than we could ever imagine Him to be. And God here says, I know that and I will not let you settle. Why? Because I am a jealous God. So let me warn you today, church family. Let me warn you today to make sure, as Martin Luther said, your thoughts of God are not too human. Let's do not reduce God to our level and prop up some graven image. Why? Because God is jealous. That's the motive in this commandment. The motive of God's jealousy. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Does it surprise you to hear that God is jealous for His glory? Some of us would be shocked to think that God actually loves God. To think that God is actually first in His own affections. But is it not true that if God did not put God first, then God would be guilty of violating the first commandment? God cannot and would not worship anything, serve anything, love anything beyond Himself. In fact, at the risk of confusing you, I hope not, God loves His glory more than He loves sinners. God loves sinners because He loves His own glory. The reason that God saves us is for the praise of His name. And that's why we can believe and rest assured today that God's salvation of us will not fail. Because He will glorify Himself in our redemption. But God is jealous for His glory. Now that may seem a little bit beneath God to be jealous, but it's really not. This is not the jealousy or uh, the kind of passion that is somebody wanting something that somebody else has. This is not human jealousy. This is not small-minded jealousy. This is the jealousy of someone who's right to expect devotion from another. This is the jealousy of a husband over his wife or a wife over his husband. One who is right to be loved. And what God is saying to Israel is, I have saved you. I have rescued you. I have broken your chains. I have brought you out of bondage. And I am committed to you actually worshiping me. And we should know that's true of us today. That God has rescued us from our sins. God has rescued us out of death and into eternal life. God has brought us out of darkness into everlasting light. And because of that, God is jealous for our hearts that we would love Him. Guys, those of us that are married, we have the unique ability to make our wives mad, don't we? We don't know why. We don't know how. We don't know what we did. Ever. We do. And we're so good at making our wives mad. Tell me this ain't true, y'all. Don't leave me hanging up here. We're so good at making our wives mad. We can make our wives mad while we're asleep and they're asleep. (laughs) You ever had your wife wake up mad at you for something you didn't do? (laughs) Happened to me this morning. 
Dream Jesse is a creep. I don't like him either. <laughs> and I'm tired of doing his damage control. <laughs> but you know why that happens? You know why it happens, really? It happens because a, a wife is right to be jealous for the affections of her husband. She's right to expect her husband to love her. She's right to expect him to be devoted exclusively to her. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying, I really do expect you to worship me and me alone. I really do expect you to develop this same kind of zeal and passion for my glory. It's the motive of divine jealousy. But as he goes further, there's also a threat against man's iniquity. You see what he says here? Because I'm jealous, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, on the surface, it seems like God is saying that if you are sinful or if you hate me or if you don't worship me, then I'm going to punish your third and fourth ones. That's great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. I'm going to punish them for your sins. But I don't really think that's the point based upon some other Bible verses. I think that this verse assumes that children worship the God of their parents. And the assumption here is that the third and fourth generation are still worshiping these false gods and God is going to punish them for their iniquity. But I'm much more interested, much more interested in the next expression where the Lord refers to these idol worshipers as people who hate Him. He said, you hate me. You hate me. Why does God say that when we exchange the truth about Him for a lie, we hate Him? He refers to it here as iniquity. And iniquity is another Bible word for sin, but Whereas sin would mean something like falling short of God's design, iniquity refers to our nature. It refers to that, that, that bent, really, that inward bent in our nature that is away from God, that we are not what we are supposed to be. We're supposed to be people that worship God, but we're not. There's something in us that's drawn towards false understandings of God. There's something in us that's more comfortable living with lies than with truth. There's something in us that resists God and rejects God. That's true for all of us. We've all lived that in different degrees, right? I know I have. There's something in us that would rather have a God in our own making. And God says, if you're more comfortable with a God who does not exist than me, then you really do hate me. And it's true, right? Since I'm already in trouble with my wife, let me go ahead and dig the hole a little bit deeper. Our couch is comfortable, and so I'll be fine tonight. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite things about our home is Amy has put up a picture wall in our home. And what she's done is she's taking pictures of, of me and her and pictures of the kids and our family and some of the artwork uh, that the kids, finger painting type stuff. And they're all different sizes and different shapes and they're in all kinds of different colored frames. But she's put them on a wall beside our dining room where it, it just fits. It just goes together. It's a picture of our life story together, right? And sometimes I'll sit there as I eat my lunch or whatever, and I'll look at those pictures and think, man, what happened to our babies? And what happened to those two kids who got married all those years ago? And, I mean, we wanted to grow old together, but y'all came fast. Um, but, stop. But imagine, imagine that I come home from the office one day, and on all those pictures and all those frames and that, that, that collage of our family journey, all the pictures of me have been cut out. And on my face is taped the picture of Stephen Tyler, the lead singer of Aerosmith. And I say, I say, honey, what, if, what have you done? You've replaced me. She would say, no, 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 no. I love you. I just wish you looked like him. 
I would say he looks, he looks like an old leather saddlebag. Why? No, 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 no. You misunderstand, honey. No, no, no. She would say, I love you, but you're just a preacher. That's boring. He's a rock star. That's cool. I love you, but I really wish you had his money. And I would say, yeah, I do too. But what would she be doing in that moment? What would she be doing is saying, there are a few things about you that I can improve and I can make better. And I love you, but if you were totally different, I would love you more. And as we live our lives many times, what many of us are doing is we're taking God as he is and we're cutting him out of our life. And we're replacing him with something else. We're saying you would be a lot better if you haven't spoken so sternly about that. We, we would be a lot happier, God, if you didn't expect this. God, we would be a lot happier if we could just do that. And we replace God. And God says, if you replace me like that, then you hate me. I know that you don't feel like you hate God today. None of us do. Especially if you're in church on a Sunday morning, you don't feel like you hate God. But the fact is, if we continue to replace Him, what do we call it? What do we call it when we say, God, we don't like you as you are? God says, for that, you'll pay the price. Your children will pay the price. And the story goes on and on of our attempt to replace God. But the story here, the text ends with this promise of divine loyalty. We've moved from this warning against man's creativity to the motive of God's jealousy, the threat against human iniquity. But the text ends with this beautiful promise of divine loyalty. God says, yes, I will punish to the third and fourth generation those that hate me, but to those that love me or those that fear me, worship me, see me as I am and put me in my rightful place. God says, I will show my steadfast love to them. Don't you love the fact here that this promise goes to a thousand generations? The sin goes to three and four. The mercy goes to thousands. God's grace is always greater than sin. His grace is always greater than sin. And that's good news for you today if you've come in here today feeling particularly uh, burdened down by your own failures. God's grace is greater than your failures. As great as you think they might be. And they might be great. They might be really nasty and really gnarly. But God's grace is greater. And he says, I will give my steadfast love. Steadfastness is not a word that we really use a lot. But it's the word loyalty. That's the idea. God says, I will be loyal to those who fear me. God says, I'm offering to you today a love that will never walk out. A love that will never let you go. A love that will never give you up. A love that will never let you down. God says, my love is a love that is committed and is loyal no matter what. But that love is given to those that fear God and keep His commandments. And we've already determined that none of us have done that. All of us have replaced God. So, where is the person? Where is the man who actually is zealous for the name of God? Where is the man? who actually puts God in his place and never replaces him? Where is the man who gets this right, who does not give over to any internal bit away from God, but actually worships the true God? Where is that man? That man is the man who flipped over the tables in John chapter number 2. And here is the wondrous beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe. The beauty of the gospel is that our God who says, you can never misrepresent me. 
You can never fashion an image of me. You can never create me in your likeness. You can never somehow make me into something visible. There was a time when that God took upon himself a human body that could be seen. That God had a voice that could be heard. That God implanted himself in human memory where people actually remembered Jesus as he was as a man. Say, Brother Jesse, why is that good news? That's good news because this God who says you cannot exchange my glory for any other is a God who is so glorious that he says, even though you cannot make me like you, I will become like you so that I can save you and so that I can rescue you. You know what that tells me today? That tells me today that if that's true, and bless his name, I believe it is. If that's true, that means that you will never invent a God like this. It doesn't matter how often you tinker. It doesn't matter how much you try. It doesn't matter how much you might collect different odds and ends and hodgepodge from this religious ideal and this cultural moment. What I will tell you today from the word of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus is that you will never invent a God who is so righteous that he would judge sin in his holy hatred for our disobedience. And yet so loving that he would take that hatred into himself to deliver his people. You would never create a God who is so perfect and so sovereign that he manages every molecule of this universe after the counsel of his own will. And yet who is so good he came into that universe sovereignly determining that he would die for his people to deliver them from death. You will never invent a God like that. You would, we sang about the goodness of God a little while ago. You would never invent a God who is so good. That he tells his people, stay away from sin. Resist it, fight it, get away from it. And yet still pursues them in his goodness when they are sinners. You would never invent a God that good. What you would invent is a God who forbids you from sinning or allows you to indulge in sinning. But you would never invent a God who's so good, he saves you from your sin. You would never invent a God this loving. You would never invent a God who is this loyal. You would never invent this God. And that tells me that this is the true God. Because I would never conceive of a God like this. I would never invent a God like this. But this is the God who is. And the God who is, the God of Calvary and the God of Sinai says, don't try to misrepresent me. Don't try to fake me. Don't settle for a knockoff or for a counterfeit. So friends, let us be sure that we are committed to knowing God as He is. I would give you a pastoral warning today about fictional representations of Jesus. Um, television shows and books that come on TV, things like The Chosen. I've never watched that. I don't intend to watch that. And though at first I didn't have any real issue with it, I began to think that, you know, for them to put that on television, what they have to do is fill in some gaps. Because they're going to take a Bible story that would take you two minutes to read, and they're going to stretch it into a half hour or hour episode or whatever. So they're going to put some things in there that didn't happen. Or at least we don't have any record of them happening. And so what what happened in our hearts is we would have a hard time telling the difference between fiction, even if it's well-intended, and reality. And we might think, well, you know, Brother Jesse, okay, but I hear you, but I really want to hear from God. I want to know Jesus. Get at His Word, where He has made Himself known. And come with a humble heart saying, God, speak to me. I want to know you as you are. Teach me, instruct me, and God will do that. When you read the Word of God, church family, and you come to things that are hard or that you maybe have a difficult time accepting or trusting, just obey God, what He's told you. And go to Him sincerely and humbly and say, Lord, I have a hard time understanding this particular doctrine or this concept or this idea, but I know you're right and I'm wrong. And so I'm going to trust you until you change me. 
I'm going to believe you and rest in you until you fix the molecules in my mind. Don't interpret Scripture by trying to make hard Bible verses mean the opposite of what they clearly say. That's dangerous, friends. Be on guard against that. Be on guard against reading the Bible out of context. Be on guard against manipulating the Bible like it is made out of Plato to make it say what you want to say. Be on guard against who you listen to preach on television and on podcasts. Not everybody with a big church is reliable. Not everyone is helpful. And some are helpful in certain areas and very, very dangerous in other areas. And if we don't have the maturity or the wisdom or the discernment to know who and what, then we need to stay away from them. When you come to church and you hear me preach, you need to be a Berean. And what I mean by that is there's a story in Acts chapter 16 where the Apostle Paul is preaching. And he's preached in Thessalonica and the people there, they just heard what he had to say and whatever. Some liked it, some didn't. Then he goes to Berea, but the Bereans, while he preached, they studied Scripture. Is what Brother Jesse says consistent with the Word of God? When people preach in our pulpit, is it consistent with the Word of God? If it is consistent with the Word of God, then you are bound by the Word of God to hear and obey what God says to you in His Word. Not what I say to you, but what God preaches to you from His Word while the Word is preached. But if it's not, fire me. Fire me. We cannot settle for knockoffs. And many of us have done that for far too long. Far too long. Worshipping some baby cow made after our own imagination. Man, that's a poor trade-off. That is a poor trade-off. What God wants to do to each of you and to each of your families is God wants to show His loyal love to you. And He wants you to fear Him. That simply means that you live acknowledging that God is God and you're not. Putting Him in His proper place as He is, not as you would like Him to be. Let's stand together this, this afternoon now. And I want to pray for us as we prepare for our invitation. When we have an invitation in our church, it's not just so that people that don't know Jesus can come to meet Him. But we have an invitation because in some way God is at work in all of our lives. We may not even necessarily know where we're at or what God is doing. But God may have spoken to you today in some way. Or maybe you need God to speak to you. Maybe you need to present yourself to Him and confess sins. Maybe you need to come to Him and thank Him for His grace. The reason we have an invitation is because we do not just want to be hearers of the Word, we want to be doers. And that means that if we have erected a false image of God, we need to tear it down. But those sacred cows, you can't tip them without a little help from the Holy Spirit. So what I'm inviting you to do is come before the Holy Spirit today and say, God, my Father, use your Holy Spirit to empower me to dismantle every false conception of you. Lord, I don't want to live with a false image of you. Because if you're living with a false image of God, you're living in a false reality. And everything will be touched by that. God, show me yourself. Let me pray. Father, Lord, I've been long today, and I know that that can reduce our ability to retain what's said. But, Father, this is so important. Lord, because Scripture is so clear that if we get you wrong, we will be wrong about everything. But, Lord, we all get you wrong. And our lives are proof of our disordered worship and affections. God, I pray in Jesus' name right now 
that your spirit would work in people's hearts. Even when we don't sense it or we don't know how we need you to work, Lord, would you please, please rescue us from false worship. Save us not just from our sins, but to yourself. Do it for your glory, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.